Well, thank you again, everybody, for, uh, for attending. We're going to get started with our panel. Uh, just a, a quick introduction of our, of our two panelists. Tom Fleming next to me, CPA principal, as, as he mentioned, and uh, PFA sponsor, Witham Smith & Brown. Uh, 17 years of tax and accounting experience, primarily servicing middle market businesses, their shareholders, and, and high net worth individuals. And we'll, we'll talk a little about individual taxes. Vast experience in tax code, M&A transactions, and reorganizations. And unlike many of the congressmen and senators who voted on the tax bill, Tom actually read most of it. Uh, and, then, and then Andy Tarkini. Oh, Andy is a tax partner with another of our PFA sponsors, Citroen Cooperman, out of the New York office. Uh, Andy has actually spent the last few months, and he can talk a little bit about that, um, in 2017, helping the House Ways and Means Committee uh, with the draft legislation legislation to help craft business and franchise friendly provisions. So in a lot of these provisions we have uh, we have Andy to thank for. So very, very, <laughs> hey, we got, you get the most credit in the room, right? Um, so he has intimate knowledge of the bill, so we're, we're very lucky to have him here. He just presented a very similar panel um, to the IFA, the International Franchise Association, on this. So um, once again, uh, thank you guys both for being here. So I, I guess let's get started off with Tom. Um, can you kind of provide us an overview of uh, some of the individual tax changes as not to businesses, but as they relate to, uh, to individuals? First, before we get started into the meat and potatoes of this, I just wanted to tell you guys something. Um, I wanted to debunk a myth that we have. Uh, see this right here? This is a postcard. And contrary to popular belief, nobody in this room is going to be able to use a postcard to prepare their tax returns. <laughs> Just in case you were wondering. I'm not sure if anybody out there thought that that was still a possibility. But sorry. Sorry to break the bad news to you. Uh, I think there's a, there's a couple ways you can break down this bill. And when you look at the individuals, or the individual side of it, I think what Congress and the President was trying to do is they were really shooting for simplification as you know, as you heard, they were looking for the postcard, tax code's too complicated. And I think from an individual perspective, I could see where it would make sense or where Congress would empathize with the average American and say, hey, we don't want to have, have, have you spend all kinds of money to go to an accountant to prepare your tax return. Can't we make something simpler? And I think that was the original intention. I'm not so sure that they accomplished it. Probably the main reason is because they have this intention and then they start in one place, but by the time they end, it's gone somewhere south or north or east or west. And that's kind of what we have here. But as far as the main points, I think the first thing we need to look at as far as a good or a benefit is that Congress did drop the tax rates. So we were at 39.6, let's call it 40%. That was dropped to 37%, so at the end of the day, if you're looking at your adjusted gross income or your taxable income, you will be taxed at a lower marginal rate. That's definitely a good. On the other hand, what they also did, which I think uh, upset a few of their constituents, is they did away with a lot of the itemized deductions. In some cases, they did away with them. I think the, the first round of bills was kind of leaning in that direction. Let's see if we can do away with all this and just have one standard deduction, a standard deduction where you're getting a, a better bang for your buck. And they, they did that, they accomplished that. They doubled the standard deduction. So now 
depending on how much you would be able to itemize, you may be better off just doing the standard deduction, which is that 24000 for married filing joint taxpayers. They still do have a couple of the deductions, but they did eliminate a lot of them. A lot of them that were subject to the 2% floor, they just flat out just did away with them. Tax prep fees, unfortunately, um, estate planning fees, uh, business, miscellaneous business expenses, they did away with all those. So uh, things you may have been deducting last year or this year, you're probably not going to be able to deduct. So yeah. do you think a lot more individuals will be going for the standard deduction? Probably. I think it's, it's more likely than not that your average individual will be going, will be opting for the standard. However, there are still some opportunities for state and local taxes. You can still deduct up to 10000 so you have a little bit of opportunity there. And mortgage interest, which originally they said we don't want anybody to be able, any taxpayers to be able to deduct their mortgage interest. They still have that, but they've they've tweaked it a little bit. So if if your mortgage, essentially if your mortgage is over seven hundred fifty thousand, then it's likely that you'll start to phase out some of of the interest deduction. One of the bright spots on the stand on the on the deduction side on the itemized deduction side is charitable contributions they didn't do away with that and they actually did something which was a little helpful to some taxpayers typically if you looked at what your adjusted gross income was and just say it was a hundred thousand dollars you could only deduct fifty percent of the AGI as charitable contributions they actually raised that limit to sixty percent so there are some folks out there that you know, get a big influx of money and they just had to give a lot of it to charity. You can't completely wipe out your liability, but you can uh, wipe out up to 60% of it. Anything that you don't get a chance to use in one year, it carries forward to the other year. Uh, one other thing that I think, and we can touch on these topics, I know we have a ton of things that we do need to cap right. cap cover, so we may do a little bit of back and forth. But a lot of these, one thing that I think wasn't intended either when Congress first dug into this was uh, there's actually a sunset provision in, in this bill as well, like the Bush tax cuts back in 2001. So everything is set to expire in 2026. So what you see right now, what you're planning for right now, um, isn't going to be forever unless they come up with some other tax bill and they make some of these changes permanent. There's a handful of things that are permanent, which we'll talk a little bit about, but for the most part. For the most part, the individuals were, have the sunset, but the business were permanent. Some, some, some of the business stuff was, m most, of, most of the stuff is, m most of the provisions are sunset. There's okay. a few that aren't. Great. So, Andy, turning to the, uh, to the business changes, can you kind of give us a, an overview of some of the highlights for, for businesses and obviously focused on, on small businesses and, and franchising. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Um, the new bill contains a lot of pro-growth and tax-saving opportunities for a number of industries, including the franchise industry. Um, we start off with a significant rate reduction in the C-Corp area. Um, then we have a 20% um, pass-through tax deduction for small for, for businesses. I, my sense is a lot of people in this room have pass-through entities. Uh, we have 100% expensing or bonus depreciation on new and used uh, equipment that has a class life of 20 years or less. 
And then there's a variety of small business provisions that are designed to ease the administrative burdens for small businesses that we'll talk about later on as well, accounting method changes, and full deductibility of, uh, of interest expense. On the less than positive side, uh, we lost the, as Tom mentioned, we lost the state and local income tax deduction for the most part at the individual level. We lost the domestic production activities deduction that many multi-unit franchisees use in their commissary businesses. Um, and then um, to the extent that you have a business that has in excess of $25 million in gross receipts, your interest expense could be limited under certain circumstances. You know, one of the things that's, that's very uh, relevant in this, in this new tax bill is that planning and modeling is, is going to be so, so important. And as we go through the rest of the discussion today, you'll kind of see um, how it relates to your current business plan, how these changes relate to your future business plans, and how you could make changes in your business to get the most uh, utility out of the changes in the Tax Act. Great, thanks. So um, I know for a lot of people who maybe uh, have used sort of the rollovers and, and RNC corps, um, that's an important thing and that's been very popular, not necessarily because of the tax structure, but, uh, but as a financing vehicle to get in. And I know that was a big talked about item. So uh, Tom, could you, what, what are the main C Corp provision changes? Yeah, well, Andy actually touched on a few of them. And I, I think if you look at where the, you know, we mentioned a little bit earlier when we talked about individuals, I think it was more about simplification. <clears throat> I think the, on the business side, it was about pro-growth. And it looks like if you look at how some of these things are ending or are evolving, and granted, one thing that we probably should mention is I don't know if, if anybody, either one of us up here can really say exactly how this is going to shake out. Uh, right now, just with all legislation, it's legislation. It's like a skeleton, you know, it, it's bare bones. And as time goes on, the IRS starts issuing information to help you understand what they were trying to actually accomplish. They're, they're interpreting what Congress is actually writing on. So you're going to have some notices that'll be out probably within the next few months. And then eventually they'll issue regulations. That could be six months from now, it could be two years from now. So you're kind of dealing a little bit of the wild, wild west right here. But I think as people speak, you know, and you hear what, you know, Andy's saying, you know, as we were talking, I think we're looking at something that is really going to push the economy forward. That's what the goal is. When you look at regular corporations, probably the brightest spot in this whole thing, I think, is the drop in the rates from a 35% rate to a 21% rate. I mean, that, that, that's a giant drop. And when we heard that, a lot of people were saying, oh, should I become a C-Corp? Should I become a C-Corp? You know, and, and I think the jury's still out on that, and I think we can talk a little bit about that. But it's tightened the spread. It's absolutely I tightened. I mean, from, boy, you really shouldn't be a C-Corp double taxation. Yeah. It's really, it's yeah. pulled it together. It's absolutely tightened the spread, and I think it's a case-by-case -case basis. This, this bill, not unlike many others, it's really, you have to look at your individual situation to say, hey, what's going to work for me based on my situation, based on my future, based on my business plan? But one of the things that it absolutely did do is if you are a C-Corp and you're sitting here right now getting ready to pay tax on 35%, next year you're gonna pay tax on 21%. That's a big cash savings. So the question is, what are you gonna do with that cash? 
you know, you're going to reinvest. Pay your lawyers. You're going to you're going to pay your professional <laughs> service providers. Don't forget about us. Oh, oh, that's true. Um, you know, are you going You're professionals. to professionals? <laughs> are you going to pay out dividends to the shareholders, um, which ultimately, um, you know, is going to to enrich, essentially fuel the economy. So I think that's really the bright spot as it relates to regular corporations. They also they repealed the alternative minimum tax, um, which could impact some taxpayers. Uh, the one, I guess you would say, rub with the Altman was that if you had losses, uh, and you, know, you had losses in your corporation this year, and you had carryover losses from a prior year, you could use those losses, but you couldn't use it to wipe out 100%, unless you were under the threshold where that didn't matter. So they did repeal the alternative minimum tax, which may provide some benefits. But you know, for the most part, I think the real bright spot is let's drive the economy, let's lower the taxes, let, let's put more money in the company's hands so they can help grow the business and make us more competitive. So turning, Andy, to the, uh, the pass-through entities, there's the, uh, you know, you hear a lot about, and I've been confused by, by that, 20% pass-through deduction on the qualified domestic business income. Can you kind of walk us through that? Sure, I'd be happy to. But maybe just to add to, um, to Tom's comments, interestingly enough, tax reform really began with the uh, landmark proposal to reduce corporate income tax rates from 35% to 20%. As a matter of fact, through the whole process, President Trump was often quoted as saying the only thing that's not negotiable is the, uh, the rate, the rate reduction for C-corporations. And the reason for that was to make uh, our multinational U.S. Uh, C corporations more competitive in the global marketplace. Um, but how about pass-through entities? <laughs> After the cut was given to C corporations, originally it was going to be 20%, um, what, what are pass-through entities going to get? And um, through the, the discussions in the House Ways and Means Committee and the senatorial offices, uh, eventually, we, we came up with something, or not we came up with something, Congress came up with something that, um, that kind of works, and I'd like to talk to you about it today. Um, so the, really, the centerpiece of this legislation is the 20% deduction attributable to pass-through entities. And the reason why it's so important is because I, th this industry operates to the tune of 70-80% um, as pass-through entities. Is there anyone in the room that operates as a C-corporation, just as a... All right, so for the most part, um, pass-through entities. Um, the pass-through deduction, uh, if you're an average income taxpayer, is not going to be all that difficult to calculate. But if you're a higher income taxpayer, it gets kind of complicated, and planning, uh, an awful lot of planning is going to be involved in the process. So let's talk about what this pass-through deduction is all about. The 20% pass-through deduction uh, basically applies to qualified, domestic business income. Qualified domestic business income. So that's income from your pass-through entities. Like the name implies, the word domestic means that the income needs to be earned from U.S. sources. So if you are a franchisor or a multi-unit franchisee and you're collecting royalties from foreign entities, that's not going to be considered domestic income, that's going to be considered foreign source income and that won't qualify. However, if your U.S. entity is performing services for foreign entities, and those services are being performed here in the U.S. under the international sourcing rules, 
that would be income sourced to the U.S. So there's some planning going on with respect to multinational uh, entities. Qualified business income also includes income from the sale of business assets to the extent that those assets would generate ordinary income. So very important when selling your business, this concept called depreciation recapture, where um, you would generate ordinary income, that would also qualify for this deduction. Qualified business income does not include specified service business income. What's specified service business income? Well, um, for folks in the service industry like Tom, Tom, and Andy, uh, Congress saw fit not to give us that benefit unless we're below certain income thresholds, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Qualified business income does not include uh, investment income. Doesn't include income from interest, from dividends, from, from capital gains. Uh, to the extent that you have qualified business income that's negative, that negative from all of your businesses in any one year, that qualified business income gets carried forward into future periods. Against qualified, qualified loss gets carried forward into future periods. Against income, kind of like an NOL concept. And there's no distinction between passive uh, activities and active activities, which at one point in time there was discussion that there was going to be. And the last thing I'd like to talk about about this deduction, this 20% deduction, is it's a haircut right off the top. So if you are uh, in the highest tax bracket, let's say as Tom mentioned before, 37% tax bracket, and you qualify in full for this deduction, uh, the net effective tax on your qualified business income would essentially be um, 29.6%, from 37% down to 29.6%. So it really does have meaningful impact. Um, it's really the centerpiece uh, for businesses, for pass-through entities. And I'm going to turn that back over to Tom. Should we, um, is this a good time to reference I the? Think, I think what we need to do is talk about the limitations, and then okay. we'll go into that. You want yeah, to go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to mention one thing as well. And a lot of this has to do with when when we look at blanket legislation, which is what we're talking about right now, we really do need to understand how it interacts with past legislation. So this 20% deduction is a really good thing. I don't think anybody's going to disagree with that. However, there is a deduction out there, and it's actually under Section 199 as well. It's called the Domestic Production Activity Deduction. I don't know if anybody here has heard of that, but it's really it's, uh, it's, it's a deduction that's been provided by certain type of businesses that manufacture or they basically they build, they produce something. And that was a 9% deduction. So the bad news is that's going away. So there's not going to be a double deduction for certain businesses that were eligible for that prior to the enactment of the 20%. So for some of you folks, um, depending on the nature of your business, um, you know, like a sign manufacturer would be eligible. Some of you folks, you may only really be seeing an 11% deduction where others are going to see a full 20% deduction. And that's really the same on the, on the individual side as well. When we talk about how a lot of the itemized deductions went away, well, we did have something called the alternative minimum tax, which I'm sure most of you have heard of. And we've also had something that's known as the P's limitation. And both of those, what they do is they take your robust itemized deduction 
and through a calculation they limit them. So even though you may be sitting here saying, oh, I don't, get a, I don't have the opportunity to deduct all these taxes that I did in the past, there's a very good possibility that you weren't deducting any of them or all of them anyway because of alternative minimum tax and because of the P's limitation. So the fact that we lost a lot of those itemized deductions may not be as bad as you think, but you really don't know that until you start running the numbers, looking at projections and seeing how your situation is going to shake out. Do you think anybody is going to see a tax increase? Yes, I do think. I think there's a possibility that certain folks, certain individuals may. I think... What category? Super high net worth I think, or high I, net worth? I think maybe, maybe high net worth. Like high net worth where you have a lot of itemized deductions relative to the amount of income that you have. But it's hard, you know, it's, it's really individual. It's individualized, and it's really on like a case-by-case -case basis. And no postcard. One thing I can guarantee, <laughs> no postcard. So, but, but it's, it's tough to, I think, um, you know, I, I ran some numbers for a lot of middle-income folks, and it's almost like a, almost turned out to be a wash. It's a push, you know, give or take a little bit. Okay. And by the way, if anybody have, has any questions or wants to chime in, please keep this uh, interactive like we always do. So, Andy, I think you I, I don't know if there was anything else you wanted to comment on or not. But. So I guess what I'll do is I'll talk about some of the limitations, and then we have an illustration uh, to talk about, take you through to kind of tie it all together. Um, sure. So, as I, as I mentioned earlier, there are a number of limitations if you are uh, in the higher income brackets. Um, and so this 20% deduction, after you get through understanding what qualified um, domestic trader business income is, and you take 20% of that number, now you have uh, limitations to look at. The first limitation is 50% of wages. So in your business, if you have $100 worth of income, 20% of that would be your starting point for the deduction. And as long as you have $40 worth of wages in your net income, 50% of those wages, you would not be in a limitation for the 20% deduction. Um, the other limitation, it's really the higher of, is 25% of wages or 2.5% of um, gross value of depreciable property. That's really for the, um, the real estate industry. And then there's one more limitation um, that you need to be concerned about, and that is 20% of taxable income, less adjustment for capital gains. To the extent that you are um, within certain income thresholds, this limitation would not apply, nor would the specified service limitation. It also would not apply. So to the extent that you are a taxpayer and you're earning married filing joint $315,000 or less a year, the wage limitation would not apply, and the specified service business um, would also not apply. And for individuals, it's one half of that 315 or $157,000. It's also important to note that the wages that you look at for limitation purposes have to be on the entity that's earning the qualified business income. That's also a very important distinction. Uh, there are many, I think I heard um, earlier when the, during the introductions that there were a number of multi-unit franchisees in the room, to the extent you have an administrative company out there where all your wages are, you're allocating wages over, that's not going to work unless you make some changes uh, in your business structure as a, as a point of fact. 
So, so we, that's a takeaway. I mean, if you that's a very important takeaway is that if you're a you know if you have multiple entities, some paying different wages that might have worked in the past for taxes, you may end up surpri being surprised. So something. Go, go ahead. You say, excuse me, on a pass-through entity, qualified service income, if you're earning less than three hundred and can get the 20% deduction. <laughs> Even you fellows, I mean, as accountants. So, so just to qualify, you, you, you calculate. Not, you, not that you, the lawyer can make less than 300. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so let me repeat it. Um, so after you calculate the 20% and a deduction, then you take a look at what your taxable income is on your individual income tax return. That's all income, wages, interest, dividends, um, so on and so forth. And if all of that, plus all your deductions, your standard deductions, itemized deductions, investment interest expense, if that number is uh, for married filing joint, $315,000 or less, then these wage limitations don't apply and accountants, attorneys, and other specified service businesses are allowed to take the deduction. I just wanted to make sure that I, I clarified that nuance. <laughs> no, I understand what you I have an example that, that so, we, so I talked about a lot of limitations. We brought an example today to walk you through that ties it all together. What the goal is, after we go through the example, you'll all be experts in it. I love it. <laughs> Back there. So, uh, I just wanted to ask about the wage limitations. So if your W-2 wages, is that what you're referring to, are 50% or more of your total income, then you get less of the deduction? So what happens is, is as so looking at $100 as your, as your taxable income, your qualified domestic trade or business income, you start out with a $20 deduction. Now, to the, if, you have, if you have taxable income greater than 315, married, filing, joint, you'll be subject to the wage limitation. So then you take a look at your wages. If 50% of your wages is equal or greater to your deduction, then you have no limitation. So to use the $100 example, if your wage is a $40, 20% of $100 is $20 deduction, 50% of $40 is $20, you would, have no, you would have no limitation. I find sometimes looking at, looking at that as the example, it's a little bit easier to understand because it does get quite confusing, even for us. <laughs> Somebody else have a question? Did you talk about the multi-business and multi-stream? Sure. So, um, so if you have, um, so as Tom mentioned earlier, this new section of law is patterned under Section 199, and so a lot of the, the rules that we, we think we can rely on are from 199. And under those, and under those rules, uh, if you have related party entities, and you have payroll on one entity, and you need it on another entity in order to take the domestic production activities deduction or this past deduction, those wages need to be actually paid on that entity. And if they're not paid on that entity, insofar as we know now, until there's, until there's perhaps new guidance, those wages do not qualify. There's two ways that you might be able to get the wages from your administration company to the actual operating company that we think works in the absence of new guidance. One is if you have related party C corporations, you could use something called a common paymaster. But most of the people in the room today are not going to be dealing with comp, uh, uh, related C corporations, you're going to be dealing with related 
LLCs and other entities. So uh, we, we are working currently, and we, we think that it works, uh, and you should speak to your tax advisor accordingly, about something called a professional employer organization. And ADP has these. Professional employer organizations were not, wasn't, it wasn't the reason why they came into existence to share payroll. It was as probably a lot of people in the room know, uh, to gain an added, added benefit in terms of um, um, better rates for, let's say, health insurance. We also think that the uh, professional employer organization is also going to work very similar to a common paymaster where um, all of the members of the professional employer organization, your administration company, and all of your operating companies are going to be considered common law employers, that's the key term, uh, in order for payroll to be considered paid on the entity that you need it paid in order to use the wage limitation. I, I, I recognize that that's a mouthful. Um, if you'd like to talk about it after the hour, I'd be happy to. But that's something that is, is catching a lot of folks uh, by surprise. And each month that goes by, where you've not been able to allocate payroll to your operating entities, could be a, a month that's lost in terms of being able to use that wage limitation. Again, that's, that's our, our read, our interpretation as of now. Uh, tomorrow, as Tom pointed out, there could be a, an IRS notice that says some, something completely different. Go ahead. Uh, you mentioned $250,000 income. So is that for each entity? So if I got like five entities, so each entity, the one entity has got uh, the net income of $250,000 less than uh, the $350,000. So then I don't need to worry about my wages on that entity, or it's the total amount which goes down to like the 10 so, so what happens is is that the, remember there, there are two limitations. One is the 20% of qualified domestic business income subject to wage limitations. And it, it's, the, it's the lower of that deduction or 20% of your taxable income adjusted for capital gains. So you could have $5 million from pass-through entities, but for some reason your taxable income is only $315,000. Let's say you had a huge casualty loss. Your deduction would be the lower of the two, which would be 20% of taxable income. Well, basically it rolls up. It rolls up. They all, so the, you can't separate them by entities because they're looking at your individual tax return not the entity tax return on the pastors as a net overall limitation so why don't we why don't we see if we can we can go through this example i think it might help to tie a number of things that we've talked about um the, the there's an exam at the end by the way <laughs> the title of the example is called pastor deduction illustrative examples restrictions and limitations does everyone have a copy in front of them So I have, we, have, we have three examples in here to kind of illustrate the concepts. The first example is a taxpayer that has wages of $100,000, has qualified business income from a pass-through entity of $500,000, has standard deductions, casualty losses, and other uh, deductions of $300,000, and their taxable income on their individual income tax return just happens to be $300,000, below the $315,000 limit. 
also included in the $500,000 in pass-through income are allocable wages or wages of $100,000 and independent contractors a cost of $100,000. Let's calculate our pass-through deduction. So for the first thing we do is we take 20% of qualified business income. And that number is 500,000, 20% of 500,000 is 100,000. Then we take 50% of our wages, which is $50,000. But because our taxable income is below 315, we ignore that limitation. Then we take the lower of 20% of our taxable income. Our taxable income is 300, 20% of taxable income is $60,000. It should be highlighted in red on your sheet. Our, our qualified, uh, our 20% deduction in this case would be $60,000. So what if this income was from a specified service business? Would we still be entitled to deduction? The answer is yes, because our taxable income is below 315, in this case for married filing joint. We didn't get into this before, but what if this income was a guaranteed payment from a partnership? Well, guaranteed payment from partnerships is not allowed for this purposes so it would not qualify. The same thing for foreign source income. It would not qualify. In example number two, we have the same $100,000 in wages, a million dollars in qualified business income, for a total of $1,001,000 in taxable income. Here we're clearly above the $315,000 that we spoke about. We have allocable wages of, embedded in the, in the uh, business income of $200,000 and independent contractors um, cost of $200,000. Let's calculate our 20% deduction. 20% of qualified business income in this case would be $200,000. 50% of our wages would be $100,000. And 20% of our taxable income would be, would be 220. So in this case the wage limitation would kick in and our, our deduction would only be $100,000. In example three, the owner of this business decided to take their independent contractors, payments that they were making, uh, and decided to convert those independent contractors to employees. They took a look at the benefits, the burdens um, of doing something along those lines, and decided that, um, that, they could, that, they could, that it would provide more benefits than burdens. So in this case, we have $1.1 million in taxable income, the same as before but now we have $400,000 in wages. Let's calculate our 20% our qualified business income deduction. 20% of the million dollars is $200,000. 50% of the wages, 50% of $400,000 is $200,000. And 20% of taxable income is, is 220. So in this instance, we were able to, to double our deduction because we made a business decision and we converted independent contractor salaries to wages. This is going to be a common theme when taking a look at your businesses as, as you come through in 2018 and you prepare for in, in the future as well. What's your business going to look like? Uh, how much in the way of, of wages are you going to have? You may have been an S corporation all these years and decided not to pay any wages to yourself because you didn't want to deal with the social security tax and, and self-employment taxes. Um, in the future, you might, might want to decide to pay yourself wages because wages paid, reasonable compensation paid to the owners of an S corporation are also counted for purposes of these wages. 
So, um, so I don't know if there are any questions. I'm, I'm sure you all understand 100% of this right now. Uh, but if you have any further questions, I'd be happy to talk to take them. Was that kind of a policy shift where they wanted to push people to pay themselves more wages, or is it just it just came out like that? I think that I think I'm sorry. I think that as I mentioned earlier, this was this is supposed to be pro-growth, um, generate a lot of employment, generate more business, and build the economy. Uh, and I think the goal is that um, the more we invest in the businesses, the more we invest in wages. Um, the, the, the better, the, the greater benefit that you'll derive, and the, the better benefit we'll have as a country, I think, was the overarching. And just one other thing to that point, I think it's probably worth noting, as Andy touched upon, when you look at the the test, it's a two-part test. The one is strictly wages, 50% of wages. The other one is 25% of wages, or two and a half percent of basically depreciable assets, but the fair or the historical cost of the depreciable assets. So I think that's another pro-growth piece here. If you do have low wages, you can get some value on the other side, on the, on the fixed asset side, provided that you have a lot of equipment that you use in the business. Um, and I guess one of the questions, and we'll see how this plays out as far as leasing versus purchasing, but I do think that this this type of legislation will tell you, hey, don't lease, buy. You know, yeah. A, a corollary to that would be the um, the changes to deducting the interest expense. And obviously, we have a lot of um, a lot of financing companies that are yeah. sponsors here. So, could you touch on that? Sure, sure. And one other thing, too, by the way, just as an FYI, is for some reason engineers and architects are allowed the deduction. They're qualified businesses. So I don't know how they. They got themselves Stronger at, at the last minute, but apparently they have a really strong, strong lobby in, uh, in uh, D.C. But yeah, another uh, area that was actually uh, a little bit surprising and, and I think is uh, pretty significant is that you can only, you are limited to the amount of interest that you can deduct is limited to 30% of your taxable income. So essentially, if you're sitting here with zero percent of your ta zero zero taxable income, you're essentially deducting zero interest. Obviously, you will be able to carry that forward and use it in the years that you have income. But I do think that that is going to impact. I, I would think it would have to impact debt. You know, um, there are some caveats too. <clears throat> As with everything, there's certain exceptions. If uh, if a business meets the 25 million gross receipts test, then if, as long as you fall under the 25 million for the past three years, that this 30% test or this 30% rule does not apply. Oh, okay. So the 30% rule on not being able to deduct income for, say, a franchisee for a smaller normal, business, smaller yeah, business will smaller not apply. Business. That's correct. <clears throat> and then there's also a couple other exceptions to one being the real estate industry. So there are there is an election that that real estate businesses and a few other businesses, public utilities, and I think maybe farm cooperatives or something or something that's a little bit more obscure can actually make the election to not be subject to this, but they do have to conform to a certain types of um, depreciation, a, a certain depreciation method, which essentially extends the amount of time that they will be depreciating a lot of these depreciable assets. So it's kind of a little bit of a give and take there. 
what you said about the architects, that they don't have the freedom to yeah, well, they're not, they're not a specified service business. So they're not considered like an accountant is or an attorney is. So they get the normal 20% they just get the like normal, any business. Like any business. How about, um, how about private equity? I mean, there's a lot of private equity involved in, in franchising. And, you know, as they think about, you know, making investments or harvesting their brands or selling, do you think this is going to increase activity, decrease? And, you speak to the impact on uh, how they view this? Sure. Um, maybe just to add to uh, Tom's comments um, as well, um, there's all sorts of different types of financing. There's debt financing, and there's also equity financing. And so I think in the private equity area, it's going to start to drive um, perhaps equity financing, especially with uh, highly levered deals. So as an example, in the limited um, liability area, a company area or the partnership area, you could have a, a lender come in and instead of lending money, they can make an equity contribution and get a guaranteed payment in the form of interest. And so what that does is it allocates income uh, to the, the private equity uh, partner, pretty much the same way as you would deduct interest expense. And assuming you have the right fact pattern, um, you can kind of have your cake and eat it too. It requires uh, a lot of a lot of thought, a lot of planning, and a lot of structure. But um, to the extent that you meet you meet all of the requirements, if you have a company um, that um, has significant amounts of debt or a transaction where it's highly levered and you're going to run into these limitations, you can look at equity financing. Um, and in the LLC area, it's just as powerful a tool in terms of immediate deductibility as it was before before the law. The other thing in terms of, of private equity um, is this notion of carried interest. And so under the old law, uh, a, uh, a member in a private equity firm would have to wait two years before they could harvest earnings and get capital gain instead of ordinary income treatment. Um, those rules have changed. Uh, we thought it was going to be done away with, and there was talk about that for many years. But now it just went from two years to three years, so not really all that, that big of a deal. Um, but something to keep in mind, equity financing versus uh, debt financing. Um, some say that equity financing can be a lot more expensive, but if done right, uh, you really can get to the same place. Another thing that I wanted to add, um, well, a few things. One, everything that we pretty much talked about right now, except the C-Corp rates, is set to expire in 2026. So if you're going to plan, you probably should start planning quickly, and your plan may have a may have a finite life, depending on what happens. Now, who knows? Uh, things get extended, you know, or things that are permanent now, or things that are temporary become permanent. You don't know, but a lot of this information that we've been discussing is set to expire. So. It does have a, a finite life. And the main trigger behind that was because they felt they had to kind of have the, the budget rules of the end. So is the thinking, um, I guess, is the is Congress more optimistic about the impact to the economy and saying, hey, if it doesn't cost us this much money, we'll extend it? Or did they not even talk about that? Well, I, I think it was really a little bit of a game. I mean, it, it was really how much were these tax cuts going to add to the, the deficit? And depending on who you talk to, uh, they came you know, they come 
they come up with different amounts saying that this is going to add a certain amount to the deficit. Well, if there's going to add a certain amount to the deficit, there are certain rules in Congress that say that you can't provide certain cuts that are going to exceed that, that cap or that bubble. So it was really, and that's why you see a lot of these things that don't really seem to, to make a whole lot of sense, you know, in a sense that um, there were things that the original intent was this, but then they would change it at the last minute, and it was really to, to kind of meet that, those threshold levels. Um, the other thing, too, I think is, and this doesn't necessarily have to do exactly with private equity, but it is important for all businesses, and private equity is impacted by this as well, is there was a provision that changes 1031 exchanges. Is everybody here familiar with the term 1031 exchange? It's essentially when you exchange an asset for another asset that has a like, like or, or similar value. So it's 1031 exchange is the code section. The other term that's used is like-kind exchange. And it was very, very common in one in real estate. But just in general practice, if you bought a vehicle, you know, you trade that vehicle in, that value of that vehicle just gets deferred. So you never really pay gain on it unless you sell it outright. So the like-kind exchange rules have changed. It's still available for real estate, and it's available for real estate that's used in the, for the production of income. But when it comes to personal property, like vehicles, it's no longer permitted. How about for a business, for a small business? You own one restaurant, you try to sell and move it over, no? Yeah, it's, it's really, it, right now, it's going forward 2018, it's limited to just real estate. Okay. Any other questions as we kind of wrap up here? We get towards the top of the hour. Um, so one, um, this has been great, great, a lot, uh, lot of info. So remember the multiple choice test is coming out, the app, the PFA app. Um, so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll ask you guys both this, uh, Tom, if you want to start. If you want people to leave here with kind of one idea, um, maybe putting a game plan together or something, what's the sort of one big takeaway for a small business owner that, uh, that you'd like them to leave here with? Well, it's a great question, and I think really it starts, with, it starts with a game plan. It starts with sitting down with your advisors, whether it's your accountant or even you know, your financial planner um, and your attorney, and say, hey, what, you know, try, to get it, try to get your arms around what your plans are for the future. I think both of us kind of start out by saying, you know, this is pro-growth. So there's really a lot, there's a lot of opportunity here. So the question is, you know, you're looking at yourself as a business owner, where do you see yourself five, 10 years from now? Where do you want to start investing some of your money? You know, what's going to really provide you with the best yield? You know, are we going to start seeing a shift um, from regular corps to pass-throughs? Uh, right now, one of the things that we really didn't mention here is real estate investment trusts are eligible for the 20% deduction. So are you going to see an uptick in investments in REITs? You know, is that a, a really good strategy to get a nice return? Uh, but, and I'll, but on the other hand, if you see dividend-paying stocks, you know, big, big multinational corporations that just got a, a giant tax cut, are they going to start paying more money in dividends? And I think you really need to look sort of at the future and say, where do I see my, you know, where do I want to start investing my money? Should I start diversifying? Um, but I think it's really just an overall plan, an overall strategy of looking at everything and seeing what's going to provide me with the, the best bang for my buck. 
Andy? <clears throat> sure, maybe just to add to Tom, Tom's comments, um, really um, pays to develop a list of the critical questions that you need to ask yourself about your business. Am I a specified service business? Should I be considering changing to a C corporation? Do I have foreign source income? Am I paying independent contractors that maybe I should, uh, should be paying them as employees? Am I getting guaranteed payments from a partnership? Maybe I need to restructure that partnership. Should I lease versus buy? Lease, I don't incur the interest expense limitations. Um, you know, what are the risks and rewards of doing all this? How's my business going to change in the future? And then the other thing that we've been doing, and I think, I think Tom has been doing as well with his clients, is we've been modeling all of this. Um, this act is, uh, as Tom mentioned, is the furthest thing from filing a postcard. In fact, it's the antithesis of that. A lot of planning and a lot of thought needs to go into it in order to capture because these, these um, the, the, the various different provisions are kind of interrelated. Uh, you squeeze the balloon on one end to get a benefit, you might not get, you might have a detriment on the other end. So asking the critical questions, building a team, modeling, and uh, you really can make this 1,000 pages <laughs> work for you. I just have one other thing to, to mention, and it's kind of on a, a different topic, but I think it's very important. When people like myself and Andy sit down with our clients, usually one of the, one of the main things we're looking at, especially if it's a new business, is method of accounting. Uh, that's a maximum of tax plan. You want to make sure that you're using the right method. And depending on the type of business that you operate within, if you buy, sell, or manufacture merchandise for resale, generally speaking, you are required to use the accrual method of accounting. Now, there's been some changes in this new law that actually allow those types of entities that essentially have inventory, you know, whether they're, they're manufacturing or they're distributing or they're selling at retail, to be on the cash method of accounting, provided that you meet a, a gross receipts test of $25 million for the prior three years. So that could be a really good planning opportunity for everybody in this room, depending on your situation. But one of the things that you definitely want to do, especially if you're a growing business, especially if you, you envision yourself um, having an appreciation in your accounts receivable, uh, what the cash method does, it's, it's that growth, you're not paying tax on that growth because you're not recognizing your accounts receivable for income tax purposes. So I do think that's definitely something that you'd want to take a look at and talk to your service provider about to make sure that you're, based on how this bill is shaking out, are you on the right method of accounting? Great. Well, look, thank you guys. Very informative. There's the handout here. And, you know, we have this room for another 45 minutes of, to continue to network. Thank you. Thank you.